All right, First Peter, chapter three. Now, if you do have a study Bible, Reformation study Bible, which I encourage every Christian to have a study Bible, specifically the Reformation study Bible, um, it's a good, uh, it's one of the best to have in your repertoire, in your, uh, your library, however small or big your library is. But I'll be relying on that somewhat to look at some of these views once again that we looked at before. They have listed in there, I believe, six views of a couple of these verses. And so that's significant. So for us to say we've got it narrowed down and figured out exactly, uh, that's, that's a stretch. We want, to, we want to be charitable and we want to look and see. I will go over these. We looked at them a little bit before. I'll just mention them again. Uh, but we'll finish up chapter 3 tonight, as I mentioned, and we'll continue to travel through uh, a couple of these difficult verses. And we will, as we did read uh, verse uh, 13 through 22, we're going to review the positions on verse 20, and we will unpack verse 21, and then, as I mentioned, we will rest on verse 22. Okay, so there's, if you do have the Reformation Study Bible in 1 Peter, you will see the uh, history of interpretation at the beginning of 1 Peter that they have there for you, and this is where I I got that. Some of you may have the abridged uh, version, and it may not have all of this, but nevertheless, uh, this is the citation. The history of interpretation. Over the centuries, the most controversial text in 1 Peter has been the discussion of Christ's preaching to the spirits in prison and the typological connection between the flood and Noah's time in Christian baptism. And that's in chapter 3, verse 18 through 22. Since the um, patri- patristic age, uh, Christian... I lost my place here. This passage has been cited along with two Pauline texts, which is Romans 10... 6 through 8 in Ephesians 4, 8 through 10, in support of the doctrine of Christ's descent into hell between his death and resurrection, and thus of this article in the Western Church's version of the Apostles' Creed. And I myself disagree with that descent into hell, and I mentioned a little bit why, nevertheless. Among ancient and modern interpreters who identify the time frame with the interim between Christ's death on Good Friday and His resurrection on Easter Sunday, significant differences exist regarding the content of Christ's preaching and the audience He addressed. The following are among the views proposed. Number one, Christ announced His victory over sin and death to the spirits of human beings who persisted in unbelief and rebellion while Noah built the ark. And this is Genesis chapter 6. Second, Christ announced... His victory on the cross to the demons. These are the sons of God, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, who drew humanity into wickedness in Noah's day. That's two positions so far. Third, Christ preached good news to the spirits of the deceased rebels of Noah's day, giving them a second opportunity to repent. Viewing 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6 as commentary on chapter 3, verse 19. Okay, this view should be rejected 
because it conflicts with Hebrews 9, chapter, chapter 9, verse 27. So, boom, we can just chuck that one right away, according to them. I agree with them. Fourth, Christ announced to Old Testament believers the good news that his death had accomplished their redemption. In this view, Noah's contemporaries are presumed to have repented as the flood waters rose and are to be taken as representing believers in all generation before Christ's coming. Both presumptions are unlikely in view of the text's actual description of these imprisoned spirits. So they slide that one aside as well. Another view held by Augustine and more recent interpreters argues, argue that the proclamation took place in Noah's time and through Noah a herald of righteousness as the Spirit of Christ spoke through him, through Noah. The content of the message was a summons of repentance and promise of salvation, but Noah's contemporaries rebelled. Consequently, they are now spirits in prison, quote-unquote, reserved for final judgment. This view poses fewer interpretive theological problems. But a reference to a preaching that took place centuries before Christ's suffering and being made alive in the Spirit does not easily fit into the flow of the text. So there we have a context problem. Several recent interpreters argue made alive in the Spirit refers to Christ's resurrection as it typically does in the New Testament. And there's several verses for that. The content of Christ's proclamation to rebellious spirits, whether they're human or demonic, is therefore an announcement of victory over both sin, which would be on the cross, and death, the resurrection which is where I land as far, personally, as far as Christ making a proclamation, a declaration, victorious, however it fleshes out. So we have six views. And we can, we can chuck one, we can set aside another, and we are about four. We can narrow it down probably to about three, maybe two. Nevertheless, I don't know, so... Let me give you a quote from Daniel Doriani. And then when we look at this other text, it gets a little bit confusing. But then when you go to a systematic theology, Wayne Grudem, one of the easiest ones to read, he lays it out easily, and it's an aha, my perspective. So Daniel Doriani says this in his commentary, Whatever the differences between Noah's clan and the family of Christ, in each case, God's people cling to his covenant promises by faith. And the Lord rescues his flock. According to Peter, Noah's family was saved through water. He continues, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven. If we streamline 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, we hear the words, baptism now saves you. Now, folks have taken that phrase right there and formed denominations and formed, you must be converted and water baptized in order to be saved. And that's erroneous. That is not true. Um, That is faith plus works. The church has long debated these words. In the early church, many thought baptism to be essential for salvation and embodied that conviction and emergency baptism of dying infants. We've studied this, we understand this a little bit. Later, Augustine stated that infants were incorporated into the faith, 
and life of the church by their baptism. Enter in the theological baggage that some of the um, those who were Roman Catholics, those who held to Catholicism and became Protestants in the Reformation, brought some of that baggage there indeed with them. <clears throat> Others focused on the long preparation of adult converts for baptism. They linked baptism and the confession of faith by which one shares in the death and resurrection of Christ. In the Middle Ages, Thomas Aquinas and others stressed that God dispensed his grace through the seven sacraments. In that system, baptism had the essential role of removing the guilt of original sin. Okay, so you want to study church history from the time of the, the New Testament to now. You get to the Middle Ages, it gets a little bit uh, interesting as you, as you go through there. So, anyhow, verse 21. Well, let's look at verse 20. Who were once disobedient, verse 19, in which he went and pro- made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, now this word, save, the verb form, which is worth looking at, but first, in verse 20, uh, we see that eight souls were saved. Okay, in the Greek there, that word is the same word in verse 21. Eight souls were saved through water. They were saved by means of water. Now, we know they were not, that's not how, the water was not how they were converted. How were they converted? By water. No, they were saved through the water, brought safely through. To save, in Vine's Greek dictionary, says the following, of the present experiences of God's power to deliver from bondage to sin. So same meaning, same usage. Okay, so this is kind of a difficult passage for some. But what does this text not mean? When we look at a scripture and we say, wow, this just jumps out at us. We say, well, what does the rest of the Bible teach on salvation? And we can say, what does this text not mean? What does not mean must, one must be water baptized to be converted. And we can, we know that. We should know that. If someone says that is not true, that you must have this plus salvation plus this, then we need to have a conversation. So it does not mean one must be water baptized in order to be saved. It does not, secondly, also mean that any person who has been baptized, such as an infant or an adult non-believer, is automatically saved. So whatever Peter is saying in verse 21, it's connected to verse 20. We see that with the phrase corresponding to that. We say corresponding to what? Corresponding to the previous verse, what he just said. We ask that question, the previous verse. There is a connection to Noah and the water. The NIV goes as far as to say, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. So the NIV, a more thought-for-thought translation, uh, says that which helps us to understand 
once again. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Noah and his family were saved through the water. In the Old Testament, they were delivered from from judgment, right? Reformation Study Bible again, the ESV. Noah's physical salvation through the waters of the flood prefigured the waters of baptism and the salvation they signify. So we see Peter using symbolism here. Noah, indeed, did not get wet. He was on the ark. We remember that as well. In this way, though, the water symbolizes baptism. And we'll look at this further. We understand water baptism saves no one as far as regeneration. I'm inclined, once again, to think along the lines of the Reformation Study Bible here as well, which says the following. Baptism symbolizes judgment on sin in the death of Christ and then also renewal of life, Romans chapter 6. And we're going to go there in a moment. The floodwaters were a judgment on the wicked and at the same time physical salvation for Noah and his family. Okay, we can see that. Now go to Romans 6. This is a passage we go to often when someone is being baptized. We're going to go to Romans 6. We're going to go back to uh, 1 Peter. I was going to say 1 John. And then we're going to go to Hebrews in in a moment here. Okay, Romans 6. Just look at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in the newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also be in the likeness of his resurrection, buried, raised up. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he has died. He, he who has died has freed us from sin. What was the verse that I mentioned this morning uh, about relating to ourself that Paul said, and I said, this is for us. I, 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 does anyone remember what that was? Where was it? Galatians, where? 220, okay, good. Someone was paying attention. Some of you were paying attention. So how does baptism save? Not by the removal of dirt from the flesh. And this is going to, this may sound confusing at first, but when I read this one quote, I think it's going to really clear up for, for us and we'll be on our merry way. <clears throat> Not an external cleansing, not washing the outward. Instead, as the scripture says, first Peter, go there. We look at the whole verse. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. If we were to uh, take out that phrase in the middle there for a moment, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, let's put it back in there. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, 
but instead, in contrast to what? An appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which parallels Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 7, which we just read. Which brings us back to the, to the gospel proclamation with the Spirit of God, pricks the conscience, and brings conviction. And if we're still unhappy with uh, this verse about baptism now saves you, and Peter saying that, we would go to his sermon on Pentecost when he says, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Saving faith expressed in baptism, baptism following saving faith, baptism very closely connected to conversion in in New Testament times. And we say, there's many reasons why we say, why isn't it so closely connected today? And we could have a discussion and debate on why that is. But let me read this to you from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Now, Wayne Grudem, most of the systematic theologies I read, most of the the men are Presbyterian. Wayne Grudem is a a Reformed Baptist um, gentleman, and some, um, on some vein of Reformed and Baptistic, I would say. He says this. Finally, what about 1 Peter 3.21, which we just, we just looked at, where Peter says, Baptism now saves you. Does this not give clear support to the Roman Catholic view that baptism itself brings saving grace to the recipient? He says, No. For when Peter uses this phrase, he continues in that same sentence to explain exactly what he means by it. He says that baptism saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body. That is, not as an outward physical act which washes dirt from the body. That is, not the part which saves you, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience. says that in the text. And he says, that is, as an inward spiritual transaction between God and the individual, a transaction symbolized by the outward ceremony of baptism. So he says we could paraphrase Peter's statement by saying this, baptism now saves you, not the outward physical ceremony of baptism, but the inward spiritual reality which baptism represents. Right When someone goes into the tank and we baptize them, what has happened to this individual before they got baptized? They were converted and they are sharing their testimony and they are taking this step of their conversion. They are saying publicly, this is what God has done for me and I'm making that public stand. Again, let me read this again. If we were to paraphrase Peter's statement, baptism now saves you. Not the outward physical ceremony of baptism, but the inward spiritual reality which baptism represents. In this way, Peter guards against any view of baptism that would attribute automatic saving power to the physical ceremony itself. He goes a little further, which will help us out as well, I think. Peter's phrase, an appeal to God for a clear conscience. Okay, what does he mean here? Grudem again helps us out. I was impressed by his, uh, his uh, commentary on this. I was encouraged by it. He says this, An appeal to God for a clear conscience is another way of saying a request for forgiveness of sins in a new heart. When God gives a sinner 
a clear conscience, that person has the assurance that every sin has been forgiven and that he or she stands in a right relationship with God. He says that Hebrews 9.14 and chapter 10, verse 22, speak this way about the cleansing of one's conscience through Christ. So to, to be baptized rightly is to make such an appeal to God, and it is to say, in effect, please God, as I enter this baptism, which will cleanse my body outwardly, I am asking you to cleanse my heart inwardly, forgive my sins, and make me right before you. Understood this way, baptism is an appropriate symbol for the beginning of the Christian life. Again, we look at the connection so close together in the New Testament. And we say all of this, as we read this, only possible through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is, leads into our next verse. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of the Father, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him, Jesus, at the right hand of the Father, this ranking, this um, position of privilege after His resurrection and after His ascension, having gone into heaven triumphantly over all authorities, powers, after His death and resurrection, the emphasis is on his glorious entry into heaven. As we just switched gears from, from that, now we're going right to Christ. All of this is possible here only because of Christ, who is at now at the right hand of God, gone into heaven triumphantly, which further leads my thinking of the proclamation, the declaration that was made when he was victorious. Because when he entered into heaven, it was, he was entering triumphantly. Emphasis on his glorious entry into heaven where he would reign, where he does reign at the right hand of the Father. The reference being Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus applies this psalm to himself in the Gospels. Matthew 22 Matthew 26, Mark chapter 12, Luke chapter 20. The psalm is also used in Numbers. Actually, it's used in numerous places in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, Romans chapter 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Ephesians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 3. So Jesus, at the right hand of the Father, having gone into heaven triumphantly, subjected authorities angels and authorities and powers being subjected to him. According to Schreiner, Tom Schreiner, he says this, this text circles back to verse 19, if we see that again, in which he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. In his view, he says, this text circles back to verse 19, emphasizing that angels, authorities, and powers are subjected to Jesus, which further leads me to the proclamation or the declaration made 
All three words in that text, in verse 22, refer to angels in other texts. So the point, Jesus reigns over all hostile angel powers. Contextually, it would make little sense to emphasize that Jesus ruled over good angels. Because again, we think of the context here, persecution, the difficulties that the original audience were going through, and who's, when they're going through difficulties and persecutions, what kind of authorities do they have over them? Evil, wicked authorities, right? What kind of uh, warfare are they going through? Spiritual warfare. And who reigns over all of those who would be causing any kind of spiritual warfare in their lives? Jesus. Peter reminded them of Christ. Who he is. Christ over all. It's important to remember the difficulties they were going through. Affliction. Persecution. The Lord reigns. He rules. He has the power over all evil beings. He has triumphed over them all. He reigns. And one day, we will reign with him. He's at the right hand of God. Ephesians touches on this as well. Chapter 1, I'll just read it for us. Verse 20. Which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, And every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Romans 8, 34 tells us that he is interceding for us. For who? For everybody, everywhere, non-Christians as well? No, for the people of God. It goes back to where we were studying in John uh, 15. So whatever our affliction, whatever our oppression, whatever our persecution, I'll just read Romans 8 for us. Not the whole chapter. Verse 38 and 39. But verse 37, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Verse 38, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come. This sounds familiar from what we were just reading in Peter and what was mentioned in Ephesians. Nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, one more text for us. Hebrews chapter 1. This goes right in with the text in Peter, 1 Peter. Hebrews chapter 1. I hear the page is turning slower. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. 
God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, who he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. Verse 3 is our verse. And he, being Christ, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much better than the angels, he has inherited the more excellent name than they. After the purification of sins. Again, who sins? Our sins. His exaltation proves the Father has accepted his priesthood and sacrifice. Triumphal entry. He has completed his work. It is finished. He has been exalted on high. This word majesty here, his greatness, which the glorified Son shares in his exalted state. Hebrews 10, verse 11 through 14, informs us that, indeed, Christ is contrasted to earthly priests. We won't read that, but you can read it later. But this radiance, Christ, the radiance of God's glory in Chapter 1, verse 3. He is the Son of God, the, as uh, Martin says, the glorious shining forth of God. The true light that has come into the world. The visible radiance of the invisible God. The exact representation of His nature. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This purification was the removal. The barrier of our communion with God is gone. Consider that, brother and sister, tonight. The purification of sins. The barrier of our communion with God is gone. Amen indeed. He is at the right hand, creator, sustainer of all, the promised king and priest. And we go to first verse um, 18 again of 1 Peter, and we'll, we're done. And as we consider this. For Christ also died for sins once for all. Verse 18, 1 Peter chapter 3. Once and for all sacrifice. The just for the unjust. So that, we see that clause there. So that what? So that he might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. Christ suffered tremendously. Christ suffered for us. We as believers, we also will suffer 
and do suffer in this life. Christ has ascended and has been exalted. And his ascension and his exaltation is our hope. Because we will reign with him. Jesus has conquered death. He reigns. He has saved us. And we will join him in his reign. So as we have gone through this, these two verses over the last two times, God willing, as we continue on in chapter 4, moving forward, we will um, hopefully have texts that are more clear to me, anyhow, and that um, will be uh, encouraging to us as well.